You can turn to Isaiah chapter 6 is where we'll be today. First of all, thank you to Colin Bates for coming back and leading worship for us all the way from Louisiana this morning, like old times. Just to let you know what is going on schedule-wise, this is my last sermon in this series here at Southwood. Most of July, I'll be teaching these sermons at Anderson, and Brian Fisher will be over here with you guys at Southwood preaching the sermons that he's been preaching over there. So if you're in the habit of swapping campuses, might not be a good month to do that, unless you'd like to hear me again, which is fine, if you really want to do that. So when I was a boy, like all little boys, I was infatuated with fire. And we had a lot of land, and so my brother and I, we could go behind the house where my mom couldn't see us, and we could build little fires and, and see how big we could get them until she would see and come, and, and we'd be in our rooms and, and time out. And so I loved building fires, and my favorite thing was to throw things on the fire to see what would burn and what wouldn't. And I discovered really quickly, all you boys, you know this, um, the m- most amazing thing to put on a fire is a spray paint can. Or, or, a, or a bug spray can. You, you don't actually put it on it. You just spray it over the flame and you have an instant flamethrower. It's really exciting. It's really fun, but it's, it's super dangerous. So if there's any kids in here, don't, don't listen to this part of the sermon. Um, really, really dangerous. And, and my dad, he caught my brother and I doing this one day, spraying spray paint over a fire. And so he thought, well, I'll teach them a lesson. And so he went to the garage and he got a nearly empty can of Rust-Oleum and threw it on the fire because he thought it would just go pop and make a loud noise and it would scare us straight. Um, But apparently it was just the perfect ratio of paint left in that can because it didn't go pop. Went off like a bomb. It blew up the fire. It it, it launched a mushroom cloud of flame that caught a pine tree nearby on fire. My brother and I were 15 feet away. It singed my brother's eyebrows. It was so hot. Absolutely terrified. It scared us straight. Not just my brother and I, but my dad too. We all ran away. Um, (laughs) Really scared us, but it actually, it worked. Because I never took fire lightly from that point on. I never mixed spray paint and fire. Again, when I saw other boys doing it, I just turned and ran. Because that moment uh, that, that I saw the explosive power of spray paint on fire, it cured me. From, from then on, I never took fire lightly. It instilled within me a healthy dose of fear and reverence for the power of fire. Never played with it again. It was never a toy again from that moment on. Well, that's what we're going to get from our passage this morning. It is going to instill within us a healthy sense of fear and reverence for something else that our world tends to take very lightly, the presence of God. That's what we're going to see this morning in Isaiah's encounter with God. Isaiah chapter 6, it's a theophany, a face-to-face encounter between Isaiah and God. Now, what you need to understand about Isaiah is he wrote his book to a people, to an audience who suffered from a deficient view of God. They believed in God, and God was useful. He was all right, but he was relatively small in their eyes, just one of many gods whom they worshiped. He was not big enough to take care of all of their needs. That's why they needed those other gods. And he was certainly not big enough or great enough to, to deserve all of their obedience or all of their worship. So he wrote to an audience with a very small view of God. Now that attitude should sound familiar to us. Because we we live in a society, America, where the predominant view of God is very small. Most Americans believe in God. I don't know if you've seen those statistics. There are not a lot of atheists in America. Most Americans believe in God. They believe that he exists, but he is just very small in their eyes. He's there, but he's not that big of a deal. 
Uh, Americans tend to give God maybe a couple hours a week. If he's lucky, they might come to church, usually only on holidays though. And they'll let him speak into their lives, maybe in certain areas, but not other areas. Maybe he gets to talk about morality in their lives, but not relationships, not career, not play, none of that. He he doesn't get that part of their lives. And his word is really, it's just a suggestion, just a collection of suggestions. It carries no real authority for them. They're their own man, their own woman. They get to decide what is true and what is right. That small view of God isn't just in our society out there. It's actually here in in churches. It has infected many churches. We, We know that God exists. We actually believe that he's very important, but he is just one of many important things in our lives. And so God is, is important. We know we should spend more time with him, more time in his word, more time in prayer, but there's so many other important things that we need to do or, or we want to do. We should spend more time with God, but that time keeps getting trumped by job and career and entertainment and got to take kids to soccer, got a big game on TV, got a hobby I love, got to watch some football, whatever it is, there's, there's always things that crowd out time for God. And so even though with our lips we talk about how big God is, with our lives we live as if he's really very small, not that big a deal. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, just for a moment, if we're really honest, I think all of us, myself included, have at least in certain times of our lives been guilty of taking God lightly. At least sometimes we have a deficient view of God. He is small to us. That's why we need this passage. Isaiah chapter 6. This is actually one that is dog-leafed in my Bible. I turn to it often. I encourage you to do the same. This should be one that you bookmark and, and read at least every year. You, you need to keep going back to Isaiah chapter 6 because it is, a, it is a passage, it is a story that God gives to us to help cure us of a deficient view of God. This moment of encounter between Isaiah and God, an an explosive moment where Isaiah finally sees how big, how great, how grand God is, and Isaiah never takes him for granted again. He never thinks of God lightly again. This moment changes everything for Isaiah. Just like that moment where I saw that can of paint explode on the fire. It's that kind of explosive moment for Isaiah, and I pray that it will be for us as well that this passage would instill in us a healthy sense of fear and reverence for the one true God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's begin with a little detail right at the beginning of the chapter. Let's kind of set the scene so you understand where Isaiah is coming from. If you look at chapter 6, verse 1, just the very first part of the verse, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, it's actually significant, that little, that little time stamp. He's telling us when this, this vision of God happened in the year of King Uzziah's death. Let me, let me set up the context for you. Isaiah was a prophet of the Old Testament who wrote to the nation of Judah. You recall at this time in history, the nation of Israel that used to be big, it had split into two, the northern kingdom Israel to the north, southern kingdom Judah. Now of those two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, Israel was always the stronger They they were stronger militarily, they were stronger economically, they were the big kids on the block. Things were going well for Israel from a human perspective, but spiritually, they were bankrupt. All along, they were completely bankrupt, they they worshipped idols all through their history, it led to judgment eventually, so they're economically powerful, spiritually bankrupt. Judah is exactly the opposite. For most of its history, it, it did pretty well spiritually, but it was economically very poor. 
very disadvantaged, very oppressed, and militarily, it was always getting beat up on. They were always the little kids on the block. And so Judah had always wanted to be able to be like its, its big brother to the north, strong, rich, powerful. Well, then Uzziah comes to the throne. A man who, who came to the throne when he was very young, he ended up ruling 52 years, really long rule from this king. And he began his life faithful to God. He was a faithful king, and so God rewarded him with great success. Militarily, he expanded Judah's borders. Economically, he built the cities. He expanded the economy. He actually was, was getting tribute from other nations. So Judah is looking up and up. Things are getting better and better for them. They're finally look, looking like they're coming out of poverty into richness. And then Uzziah does something really foolish, really foolish. He gives in to pride. I'll read the verse to you. You don't have to turn there. Second Chronicles chapter 26, it tells us. But when he, that is Uzziah, became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So he's a king who decided he also wanted to be a priest and you didn't get to do that in the Old Testament. You could either be a king or a priest, couldn't be both. He was so proud of all he'd accomplished. Things were going so well. He had, was saving Judah that he just figures, well, I'll be the man, I'll do it all. So he goes into the temple to offer a sacrifice and God judges him, strikes him with leprosy, never heals him. Uzziah goes into isolation and dies of failure. And so all of the gains that had come early in his rule, the economic gains, the military gains, they're all lost. They're all gone. And Judah sinks back into poverty and oppression and hopelessness. And so when we're told that this vision comes in the year of Uzziah's death, what it's telling us is it comes at this moment when Judah and when Isaiah were incredibly disillusioned with life. They're depressed. They are so discouraged. They had put so much hope in this king who had blown it. He, blow, he had blown it and plunged their nation back into poverty. So they're feeling depressed. They're feeling disillusioned. And in the, mo, in the midst of that depression and disillusionment, God shows up and he reveals himself face-to-face, a theophany to Isaiah. So let's see what God shows, what he teaches Isaiah in this passage. Look with me starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke." So in the midst of this national depression, disillusionment, discouragement, God shows up to reveal himself, to show them, here is who I am. I want you to know who your God is. And in this passage, God reveals five things about himself to Isaiah. Five things that were true then, five things that are true now. The first thing that God reveals to Isaiah about himself in this passage is that God is supreme ruler of heaven and earth, of all nations, of all peoples, for all time. He's supreme Lord. You see that right at the beginning, the word Lord. In Hebrew, it's Adonai. It means the one who is sovereign, the one who has authority, the one who gets to do as he pleases. So God, our God, is, is Adonai. He is the sovereign one. You see that again uh, later on when the seraphim, they call him the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, it's literally Lord who commands armies. 
saying that, that your God commands all armies on this planet, not just the army of Judah. The army of Judah at the time was big. It was actually over 300,000 men, but that was nothing because God commanded every army on the planet. What's actually fascinating is that that extends all the way to armies that are commanded by really, really evil people. Later in the book of Isaiah, the army of Assyria and the army of Babylon, some of the most ruthless soldiers who have ever been on the face of the planet end up obeying God. They do whatever he commands them to do. He has authority over every army on earth back then and today. He is the supreme authority over everyone. You see that in how Isaiah describes the throne of God. In verse one, he says, it is high and exalted. It is lifted up. In the ancient world, a king showed his authority to people by how tall he built his throne. Really, literally, how tall he put his chair and how, how much decor he put on it, how he decorated it. It revealed to people how much authority he had. And Isaiah's point is, your God's throne, it's like way up there in the air. And it's totally decked out, it's exalted. There's no one with a throne like him. In other words, God is the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. No one can challenge him. He commands armies and they obey. Isaiah needed to hear that because he had put all his faith in this human king, Uzziah, who had let him down, blown it, died in disgrace. Isaiah needed to remember that, that it didn't really matter that Uzziah died because it was never about Uzziah. He was never really the king of Judah. It was always God, always had been, always will be. And there's a great sense of hope and security that comes from that. There's a lot of us in this room that need to hear that same message. Because we look at the direction that our world is going, we see insecurity, we see warfare, we see hatred, we see immorality, we get worried and angry about the direction that our country is going, and we need to stop for a moment, and we need to remember that the fate of our country and the fate of our world has never rested in the hands of presidents or courts or congresses. It has always been in the hands of God alone. And he's got this. It's it's not worrying him. He's not afraid. He's not angry. He's got it. He's watching over it. And there's a great sense of hope and peace that comes from that. God is the supreme ruler of everything. He calls the shots. And because of that, he doesn't need our worry. He doesn't need our anger because he's got everything under control. He is the supreme ruler. That's the first thing that he wanted Isaiah to understand and he wants us to understand. Second thing about himself that God reveals in this passage is that he is overwhelming glory. That word glory, we hear it all the time. In church, what does it mean? In, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's the, the Hebrew word kavod, and, and it means heavy or that which is weighty, that which presses down on you, which pushes you back. And it's a, it's a funny word because in another passage in the Old Testament, it is used of a king who was really obese, a really fat king is called glorious. Why? Well, because this guy is so big that when he's in the room, you can't help but stare at him. He's so big that he almost fills the room. If he sat on you, he would crush you. That's the idea of God's glory. It is so big, it is so overwhelming that it crushes you, it pushes you back on your heels. You see that weighty, that heavy glory of God all the way through this passage. You, you see it first, you see in how it fills spaces. Do you notice that, that word fill? It's used three times. It's used for how God's robe, so the robe that he's wearing, how the train or the end, the hem of the robe, fills the entire temple. The whole temple is covered with God's robe. There's no room left in the temple. So I assume that Isaiah is actually outside the temple looking in through the door. I don't think he's inside the temple because there's no room left for him. 
God's glorious robe fills the whole temple. It's not just his robe filling the temple. What else is filling the temple? Verse four, smoke. This smoke, we don't know what it's from. We don't know what the smoke is. All we know is that it emanates from God's glory, from his presence, and it fills every cubic foot of the temple. So it is actually good that Isaiah is looking in from the outside because if he was in the temple, he would suffocate. He would suffocate if he was any closer to the glory of God. It just fills all those spaces. But God's glory doesn't just fill the temple. Notice the seraphim say, verse three, it fills the whole earth. In other words, every square inch of this planet is covered and, and saturated with the glory of God, the fingerprints of God, the work, the sovereignty of God. Even if you don't see it, even if you're oblivious to it, it's here all around us everywhere in this universe. God is present and at work. We call that God's omnipresence that he is always everywhere completely present and at work, even if you don't see him. So what Isaiah is telling us is that the glory of God, it fills all spaces. It breaks down any boundaries that you would try to put on it. I think what Isaiah is teaching us is that we cannot put God in a box no matter how hard we try. And, And that's what we try to do, right? That's what human beings try to do. We try to put God in a box that's comfortable to us. We try to circumscribe him and draw boundaries around his influence in our lives. So, so God, I will give you one day a week, but I get the rest. God, I will give you the spiritual stuff, but I get all the real world stuff. God, I will give you this much access into my life, but no more. What Isaiah is teaching us is that if you can fit your God in a box, he's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't fit in a box. His glory fills all spaces. It overwhelms and saturates every part of your life, every moment of your day, everything that you do and everywhere that you go. God is always in and around, fully present and at work in you. Okay, so God's glory, it it fills all spaces, but that's not the only thing that we learn about God's overwhelming glory in this passage. The second thing that we learn uh, that's actually fascinating, you learn it by noticing what is missing those four verses that we read, there's something missing. It's, it's really obvious. It's glaring. There's one thing that's not described. There's a whole lot of stuff described. What's not described? God. Nothing that tells us what he looks like. Isaiah describes the robe he's wearing, the throne he's sitting on, the temple he's in, his attendants, the seraphim. He describes all of this stuff, even the smoke in the air, but he never tells us what God looks like. Why? Because he can't look at God. He cannot look at the face of God. You see that concept often in the Old Testament. When God shows up in all of his glory, you cannot look at him. But it's not just Isaiah who can't look at God. Who else can't look at God? The seraphim. Seraphim in Hebrew, it means fiery one. Their bodies are a burning flame. They are glorious in their own right. They speak and the temple of God shakes. These are scary, angelic beings. And yet God gives them a whole extra set of wings so that they can cover their eyes. They can't look at God. He is too overwhelmingly glorious for the most powerful angels in the universe to look at. And what that's teaching us is that the glory of God, if you were to see it unmasked, unfiltered right now, it would absolutely overwhelm your senses. You could not look at him. Be like when when you were a kid and your mom said, don't stare at the sun. And you did it anyways because when mom says don't look at something, you just really must look at that thing. And so I remember going outside when my mom had warned me, don't look at the sun, on a really bright sunny day and trying to make myself stare at the sun. I couldn't do it. Because immediately my eyes would hurt. They would would just reflexively close and turn away. It's like an automatic response and they'd be watering and they'd be hurting and I'd get big black spots over my eyes for a few minutes. 
The brightness of the sun overwhelmed my sense of sight. Well, that's what it would be like to be in front of God. Right now, in all his glory, it would simply overwhelm you. You would not be standing up. You would fall on your face and cover your eyes like the seraphim because his glory absolutely overwhelms us. God's glory fills all spaces. It overwhelms our senses. There is nothing like the glory of God. To be in his glorious presence would not be reassuring and comfortable and it certainly would not be pleasant. It would absolutely overwhelm you and put you on your face. So the second thing we learn about our God, he is overwhelming glory. Third thing that Isaiah teaches us about our God is he is holy other. That word holy, clearly important there in verse three. What does it mean? That's another word that you hear a lot in church. Let's, let's talk about it for a moment. Holy, in the Bible, it means that which is set apart, that which is distinct is the basic idea of it. And you'll see it used a few different ways in the Bible. Often, you'll see all of these three uses frequently in the Bible. The first is to describe that which is ceremonially holy. So people or places or things that are set apart for the worship of God. So I'll give you an example. Uh, They had tools in the temple that were used to stoke the fire. And those tools, just pieces of iron, were called holy. Why are they holy? What, What it means that they're not common. There's special tools that are set apart. You would actually be punished, you'd die if you took those tools home to stoke the fire in your house. That was a death penalty for doing that because those tools, they are special, they are holy, they are set apart, dedicated for this special task of worshiping God. So there's ceremonial holiness. You you are distinct, you are are not common. A second sense of that word is is moral holiness. To be set apart or, or separate from the sin that characterizes this world. Now that's, the holiness that you typically think of when someone says holy. You think moral holiness, that, that, that you're righteous, that you're good. And when, when you really look, when you look at what the Bible says about moral holiness, you realize it's not just your actions, not just doing good things. Moral holiness means that you do the right thing, you say the right thing, you think the right thing, you even feel the right thing all the time. And when you add it up like that, you realize none of us is morally holy. None of us can reach that standard. Only God is morally holy. Only he is perfectly moral in every way. But that's not the only thing that the Bible means by God being holy. There's a third sense, the most important sense. The Bible by holy, when it talks about God, it means he is absolutely holy. It means that he is completely, utterly, absolutely distinct from everything that is not God. I don't know if you realize this, but there are only two things that exist. Really simple if you want to break down all that exists into just two classes. There's God and there's everything that's not God. And and the difference, the gap between those two classes of things is infinite. The gap separating God from his creation is infinite. What that means is that your God is not just a better version of you. You are not just a lesser version of God. No, the distance between you and God is infinite. There is nothing like him. He is utterly, absolutely distinct from everything in creation. He is infinitely above us. We are nothing in comparison with him. When God says that he is holy, he means all three. He is uncommon. He's not like regular things. He he is morally perfect and he is absolutely distinct from his creation. So your God, he is holy, but you'll notice Isaiah doesn't just say that God is holy, right? He says God is holy, holy, holy. And in the Bible, when, when you want to emphasize something in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, you repeat it. 
That's how you emphasize things. So in the book of Genesis, uh, it tells us when God is warning Adam that if he eats from the forbidden tree, he will die. It says literally in Hebrew, you will die, die, which means you're, you're gonna die and it's gonna be really bad. You're gonna die in every sense of the word. You really don't wanna experience that death. It's gonna be horrible. So you emphasize things by repeating them. That's common throughout the Old Testament. There is only one place where something is emphasized by repeating it three times. Lots of places where a word is doubled, only here that it's tripled. The holiness of God. Actually, only one other place in the whole Bible, New Testament included, where you get the, uh, an attribute, a characteristic of God that is repeated three times. It's right here, book of Revelation, chapter four, verse eight. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. You read all the way through your Bible from beginning to end, you'll never see that God is love, 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 that he is patient, 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 that he is kind, kind, kind. You will only ever see that he is holy, holy, holy. Only attribute of God that's repeated three times. Why? Because at the end of the day, the most important thing that you need to know about your God is that he is not like you. He's not like the gods of other religions. He's not like anything in creation. He's not like us. He is utterly, infinitely, completely distinct and different. The distance between us and God is infinite. He is holy, holy, holy in every sense of that word. Completely uncommon, morally perfect, and absolutely distinct. And when Isaiah stands in that holy, holy, holy presence of God, it leads him to a fourth realization. A fourth way to describe God. As he stands in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God and then looks at himself, the fourth thing that Isaiah learns about God is that God is a terrifying judge. Look with me, verse five. Then I, that is Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, it sounds, uh, it's actually really not capturing the Hebrew. He's cursing himself. This is a curse word. He is cursing himself. Why is he cursing himself? Because he says, I'm ruined. I'm doomed. I'm going to die. I'm going to be destroyed. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah understood our words, our our speech. It it reveals the character of our heart. And and Isaiah knew. He looked at at the words he'd said. You know, there's a lot of sinful words there. Words that are not true or or that are not loving, are not kind. And he knew that when that sin gets in the presence of a holy God, the result will be death. For a sinful creature to come into the presence of the holy, holy, holy creator God is doom. Doom. That's what you learn in in Habakkuk 2. It talks about our God. It says that your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God can't approve sin. So when Isaiah comes into his presence, he, he realizes, well, I'm going to die, not because God is going to decide to kill me, but because that is what always happens. When sin comes into the presence of holiness, holiness always wins, sin is destroyed. Isaiah is utterly terrified He is absolutely scared to death as he stands in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And that's that's a, a lesson that we need to learn. We need to understand that there is no greater threat 
to your life than the holiness of God. That is the most dangerous thing that could happen to you right now is to stand in the unfiltered presence of the holiness of God. There's nothing safe, there's nothing comfortable about being in God's presence. When you see him in all his holiness, it is absolutely terrifying. There's this great tragedy in modern life with with all of our entertainments, with all of our distractions, we have tended to become bored when we think about God. When we think about spending time in his word or in prayer, for a lot of us, it just feels a little bit boring because how can it compare to IMAX 3D movies and and Xbox and going to Kyle Field watching a football game? How, How can this book compete with any of that? And so we think about spending time with God and we feel like it would be boring. And, and because we feel that sense that it would be boring, we need to read this passage every year, at least, maybe every month, and remind ourselves that to actually stand in the presence of God would not be boring. In fact, it, it would be like the last thing that would ever come to your mind to think this is boring. What it would be is absolutely terrifying. It would be the scariest thing you have ever experienced to stand in the presence of God. And that's true even for us who accepted Jesus early in life and grew up in the church and who live morally righteous lives. Because you know what Isaiah did too? Isaiah was actually more righteous in his lifestyle than any of us in this room. And yet he stands before God and what does he say? He curses himself and says, I'm gonna die. This is the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. He is the opposite of bored. He is absolutely, utterly terrified. When he sees the unfiltered holiness and glory of God and then looks at his sin, he realizes the only thing that can come of this is my destruction. It's game over for me. Unfortunately for Isaiah, there's one attribute left. Passage doesn't end at verse five. One more thing that God wants Isaiah to know about himself. Look with, starting in verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. One last thing that God wants us to know about him. Not only is he a terrifying judge, but fortunately, fifth attribute, he is a gracious giver. God is gracious, because here's Isaiah. He knows, it's absolutely clear, in front of all of heaven watching, that Isaiah deserves to die right now. It should be game over for him. And instead of giving him death, instead God gives him grace. God gives him grace in a couple ways, actually. The first gracious gift that God gives to Isaiah is he gives him the gift of salvation. Right there in those next few verses, six and seven, God gives Isaiah the gift of of salvation. He sends one of these seraphim with a burning coal to touch his lips to forgive his sins. That, That burning coal is a symbol of purification. God purifies him of sin so that now Isaiah is for then on and forever pure in the sight of God. That's describing how salvation works to us. You notice a couple things about how God saves Isaiah. First, it's instantaneous. There's no process here. It doesn't have to walk through a number of steps. No, the coal touches his lips and the sins are gone. And it's not something that has to be repeated. Isaiah doesn't have to come back day after day and get his lips burned over and over again. No, once is done and he's forgiven from this point forward. That's always how God's salvation works. It's instantaneous and it's free. Do you notice how free it is? There's nothing Isaiah does. He doesn't make a commitment to God. He doesn't turn from sin. He doesn't reform his life. He doesn't do anything. 
except receive the free gift of forgiveness. That's what God offers to every person today. Free gift of forgiveness. It's not something you earn. Don't have to impress God. You don't have to work for it. You will never merit it, so quit trying. Forgiveness is an absolutely free gift that God extends to you. All you have to do is say, yes, God, I want it. I want to receive that gift. Now, we know more than Isaiah did. We know that that the way that that gift would be made possible was through Jesus, God's own son, dying in our place and rising from the dead. So the moment that you say to God, yes, I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the dead so I could be forgiven as a free gift, your sins are taken away forever. doesn't have to be repeated. There's no process. There's no steps to walk through. Once and for all, your sins are forgiven. That's the gift of salvation. That's the first gift that God gives to Isaiah, but God doesn't end there because God is, is not content to just save Isaiah. That's not enough of a gift for God. He wants more for Isaiah. And so the second gift that God gives Isaiah is the gift of significance. He gives him a mission in life, an eternally significant purpose to fulfill with his life. He says, looks around heaven and says, who will go to be our witness to the world? And Isaiah says, I, I will go. God gives him that mission to be God's witness to the world. Now we need to, we need to recognize, we need to understand, God did not give Isaiah this mission because he needed Isaiah's help. Verses one through four, we're very clear about that. You, you do not have a God who will ever need anything from you. Doesn't need your help, not at all. This isn't that God needed Isaiah, it's that God wanted Isaiah. He wanted to give Isaiah a gift of significance, a purpose to live for in life that was bigger than himself, that would give meaning to him. God offers that same gift to you. The gift of significance. Right now, I don't know if you believe this, I don't know if you can see this, but right now, God in heaven is saying, who will go for us? Who will go to be our witnesses to the world? Who will go to take the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for sins and rose from that? Who will take that message to their neighbors, to their co-workers, to their family, to their friends, to the poor, to the disadvantaged, to the far reaches of the earth. Who will go for us? God is asking you that right now. But he won't force it on you, just like he didn't force it on Isaiah. It's a voluntary mission. It's, it's volunteer. You have to say, like Isaiah, here I am. Send me. God, send me to my neighbors, to my coworkers. Send me to my family, to my friends. Send me to the poor. Send me to the disadvantaged. Send me to the ends of the earth to be your witness, to take the love of Christ to the far reaches of this planet. God wants to give you the gift, not only of salvation, but the gift of significance. Not because he needs you, he needs nothing from you, but because he wants in grace to give you purpose, to give you meaning, so that you can be his witness to the world. Will you say yes? Will you say like Isaiah, here I am, send me. The reason that Isaiah said, here I am, send me, and stayed true to that calling he, he stayed true to his, to his mission as God's prophet to the world, even though it got really hard. The reason that he said yes to God's invitation to significance is because he had seen God as he truly is in all his glory and all his holiness and all his wonder. He had seen God and he recognized that when you see God as he truly is, every other pursuit in this world seems really small by comparison. When you see God as he truly is, you cannot imagine anything more worthy to give your life to than to him. So Isaiah said yes. With that in mind, as we think about Isaiah's response to God, that he said yes to God, I want to end by, by asking you a question, by, by calling you to think about God. I want you to think about your view of God. I want you to ask yourself this question, how big is my God? And, and I don't mean like how big is God actually. 
How big is God as the Bible reveals him? How big is God theologically? That's not what we're talking about now. What we're talking about now is how big is God to you? In your mind, when you think about God, when you pray to God, how big is he to you? When you think about God, ask yourself, is, is God, as he is to you, your conception of God, is your God big enough to inspire fear in you? A healthy dose of reverence in you. When you spend time with God in prayer, in his word, in confession, and worship, do you actually feel a, at least a little bit of fear, a little bit of reverence that you're in the presence of the Almighty God? If not, if you don't feel any fear, if, if you feel really comfortable, really safe, that's not good. It's not a good thing. Proverbs is really clear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. If your God is safe and comfortable and you don't feel any fear in his presence at all, that's not the God of the Bible you're with. The God of the Bible, he inspires fear, inspires reverence in us. So how big is your God? Is he big enough to inspire fear in you? Second, is he big enough to demand your complete obedience? When you think about God, does, does he inspire and command your complete obedience in every area of life at all times, or does God kind of fit in a box and he gets certain days in certain parts of your life, but not other days and not other parts of your life? Is, is your God negotiable? Can you make deals with him to excuse smaller sins? If any of that's true, then he's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is holy, 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 absolutely holy, morally perfect. He demands complete and utter obedience from you at all times in all parts of life. Is he big enough to demand your complete obedience? Finally, is he big enough to meet all of your needs? When you think about God and then you think about all that you need in life, all the things that, that the lack of them would make you feel afraid or worried or anxious, is God big enough to entrust your entire life to? When you feel afraid, can you give that to God because he's big enough to take care of it? When you have a need, can you give it to God because you believe he's big enough to take care of it? Or do you only trust God with certain things, but, but you worry about the rest? And you think God really needs your worry, he needs your anxiety, he needs your control, he needs you to manage things, he needs your intellect, he needs all your work and all your effort to make your life and the life of your family work out okay. If your God needs anything from you, then he's not the God of the Bible. That's not God. He doesn't need anything from us. So as you walk through these questions and you think about how big God is to you, if you feel a little bit convicted, if, if you realize that maybe you have suffered at least at times from an insufficient view of God, that God has been a little bit too small in your eyes, first I would tell you, join the club. All of us suffer from that. All of us, no matter how long we've been walking with God, our tendency as we go through day-to-day life in this distracting world, our, our tendency is to think lightly of God. He, he becomes too small to us. We don't see him in all of his greatness, in all of his splendor. So first of all, take comfort in the fact that we've all been there. Second thing that I would encourage you to do, if you sometimes suffer from a deficient view of God, I would encourage you today or tomorrow to take 15 minutes and get alone with Isaiah chapter 6. Sometime tonight, sometime tomorrow, get alone with Isaiah chapter 6 and read back through verses 1 through 8 and pray through them. Pray through them and just thank God that this is God. You don't have a God like other religions. You don't have a God like the ancient nations. You, You have this God. So thank God that this is your God, that he's great, that he's glorious, that he is worthy of our praise, that he is holy, that he never sins, that he never does anything wrong, and that yet he is incredibly gracious to us who deserve death. 
So read through the passage, spend time praying and thanking God that this is who he is, and then take some of that 15 minutes and think about the way you are living. And think about it in your day-to-day life, as you go through life in this world, are you living as if you have a really big God? Or are there days or situations or parts of your life where you're living as if God is small, even if you would say that he's big? That's where most of us are. We know the right answers. With our mouths, we will say, God is holy, holy, holy. He's big, he's great. And yet in our day-to-day lives, there are often parts of lives and relationships and, and tasks and things where we live as if our God was small. So pray that God would open your eyes to see those places where you're treating him as if he is small potatoes so that you'll be convicted of that, so that that you can begin to work on that and begin to live day to day, moment by moment, as if your God is holy, 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 overwhelming glory, supreme ruler of heaven and earth. So spend 15 minutes today or tomorrow, get alone with Isaiah chapter six, spend time verses one through eight, reading, meditating, praying, worshiping through this passage. Do it this week, next couple days, but then bookmark it and you're gonna need to go back. Got to look at this passage every year, if not more often than that, to remind us of how great our God is. Let me close this in prayer. Stick around after I pray. I have one more thing for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you that you are the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. There is no one competing with you. There is no one who can challenge you. The fate of our nation, the fate of our world is not in the hands of any rulers on this planet. It is in your hands always. We thank you that you are the sovereign ruler. We praise you that you are overwhelmingly glorious, that you are in this, that if you revealed your glory in this room to us right now, that it would put us on our faces before you. We praise you, God, that you are holy, 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 that there is no taint of sin, there's no taint of evil in you. You are completely righteous all of the time. And even more than that, you are completely and utterly distinct from creation. You are not like us. You are not like the gods of other religions. You are utterly holy in every way for all time. And we recognize, God, we come before you and we recognize that because we are sinners, to come into the presence of your perfect holiness is utterly terrifying. It is the greatest threat to our existence. It would be the most scary thing we have ever experienced. Lord, we we recognize that and so we thank you and we praise you that at the cost of your own son, you have purchased forgiveness for us. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die and rise from the dead because that is the only way that we could be safe in your presence. We recognize that, we praise you, we give thanks for that, Lord, and we pray that now that you have saved us to the death and resurrection of your son, we pray, Lord, that you would send us forth, that we would respond to your call to go on mission, that we would be your witnesses like Isaiah to this town, to this campus, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers, that some of us would even take the message of the gospel to the the nations all over this planet and tell them what good news it is that the holy, holy creator of heaven and earth at the cost of his own son offers them forgiveness. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you love us. We pray that you would give us a bigger vision of you, that you would correct our small view of you, that you would help us not to take you lightly, but that you would inspire within us a healthy dose of fear and reverence. I pray that that fear would lead us to obey you more fully and worship you more completely. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your son who makes it possible for us to be in the presence of the holy creator. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last thing I wanted to mention to you guys, it's the middle of summer, so I know there's a lot of you who are checking out our church or you're relatively new to our town or to our church. We would love to to tell you more about Grace Bible Church and answer any questions that you have about us. And so rather than send you to a class or something like that or make you call us, a number of us, a number of pastors, a number of leaders are just gonna come to the front of the stage right now. And what we would ask you to do is if you're new to the church, if you have any questions at all about our church or about how to get connected, just come up. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to answer your questions and help you get connected to Grace Bible Church. For those of you who are already connected to our church, God bless you and have a great week.